as companies think about that retention piece and they think about all of those other groups and how diversity plays into it, again, being intentional, understanding your employee's experience, planning out that career mapping and thinking about what it looks like day to day, putting time and attention and resources and energy behind it, that's what's going to make a difference. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am so happy to be here today with Seda Howard, Chief Talent Officer at IVP, a venture capital firm that turns breakout companies into enduring market leaders. Seda, it is such a treat to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Bethany. I'm excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And just as we get started, I'd love for you to share a bit about yourself with our listeners. Will you tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from, the path that you've taken to your current role at IVP? Sure. The where I come from is a much longer question and a much longer answer, but I'll summarize it with, I'm an immigrant kid. I was born in Liberia, West Africa, immigrated to the U.S. when I was young. I've lived all over America, East Coast, Middle America, and then California for the last X number of years. So I consider myself a Californian. From a work perspective, it's a pretty similar situation in that I've done a lot of different things professionally, but the real key and focus is when I finally figured out what I wanted to do when I grew up, which was work with talent and work with people and help companies find great talent and find great people and help great people find great organizations that they could be successful in and successful with. Seda, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, I hope over the course of this conversation that we'll get to dive into a little bit more of some of those facets of your background. But just as we get started, sometimes our breakliners will look at someone like you and not be able to connect the dots between where they are today and where you are today. <laughs> and so one of the questions that I love to ask, and we actually also asked this in our breakline application is, Hey, can you share a forging experience with us? Something that you transcended or grappled with or pushed through or pushed past that really changed your life and shaped your career? Grappled with. That is a great question. I think if there's a theme of anything in my career, it's the idea of betting on myself and betting on myself when it wasn't clear that success was going to be on the other side of that. When you talk about forging moments, a couple of them. My first job out of college was at a law firm, a big firm here in the Valley called Wilson Sansini, Goodrich and Rosati, Whizier, as some people call it. And I worked there because I thought I was going to law school. That was always the plan. That was always the thing I was going to do. Again, immigrant kid with my dad, you could be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, and that was about it. And so I chose the lawyer path. When I realized that I didn't want to do that, that that wasn't the career for me, 
I was lost and didn't know what came next. And that was a really humbling moment, especially when from the time you're 12, you know what you're going to do and people ask you and it was always clear, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a lawyer. And so not having a plan anymore and having to figure out what came next I understand why you would think brake liners would look at where I am now and think, oh, yeah, it was this nice orderly. You did this and you did this and you did that. But that's not how it goes for a lot of people. And that's certainly not how it went for me. After I got off that law school track, I did a lot of different things. First, I pursued my dream at the time, which was the entertainment industry. I picked up and moved to Los Angeles. And again, betting on yourself. I knew nothing about the entertainment industry. I didn't know anybody there. I used a few contacts to get some informational interviews. And people told me good things, and I listened to that advice, et cetera, and worked my way through and ended up having a bit of a successful career there. But again, that theme of, I love entertainment, but I don't love living in Los Angeles. What do I do to try to marry those two? The dot-com boom was happening here in the Bay Area. Didn't know anything about technology, but knew that I had already proven twice I could learn something new. I could ask good questions. I could listen to the answers. I have that lifelong learner mindset and that ability to translate things I've done in the past to new things and experiences and expertise that I've been able to build in one area into something else. So I was able to make that transition into technology. Same thing has happened several times over in my career. And so the forging moment, if you put them all together, is really that don't be scared of something new. Don't be scared of something different because you've done that before, right? I try to remind everybody, you've had a first day at school. You've had a first day at work where you didn't know anything. You didn't know any of the acronyms, didn't know where the bathroom was. You didn't know where the cafeteria was. And then you did, right? You learned it. You asked some people some questions. You read some information. You studied. You did whatever you needed to do to get all of those things. Giving myself opportunities to do that, and scary as they were, right? To do that, and then jumping out and doing that, and then being successful at it. That's literally what got me to this point that I'm at today. Mm, I love that story so much. Seda, and that theme of lifelong learning, (laughs) I was thinking about a moment that I had in business school. My husband and I went to business school together. He came from Wall Street and I was what they called a poet, meaning like I just had no quant (laughs) background at all. (laughs) And somehow we wound up in the same corporate finance class. And I remember he came into my dorm room one day and I was just sobbing over this model. And I was like, I do not know how to do this. And he said, that's what you're here to learn. But I felt ashamed of not knowing it already. And what you're saying is, hey, this is a whole trajectory for your entire life. There are going to be opportunities unfolding before you to learn, you know, and really believe in your capacity for learning. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've just been lucky at, and my dad instilled this in all of the kids early, is there's no ego in not knowing something. The only shame is not asking the question, right? The only shame is not taking the opportunity to learn something. But there's no problem with not knowing how something works, not understanding the model, and then taking the help that you receive, right? I think that has been a blessing for me where I've seen others sort of struggle with that idea of, oh, but I'm supposed to know already. It's okay. You're not supposed to know anything. It's okay. What an amazing gift that he gave you, that gift that it's okay to ask for help. No one ever achieves anything great all by themselves. Absolutely. That's wonderful. When you think about the choice that your parents made, that your father made to emigrate from Liberia to the United States, like I just have a reverence for immigrants in this country, like the risk, the willingness to go after a new life. When you think about his bravery, 
what speaks to you about that journey that he made? I think that was probably the first unconscious lesson in taking a bet on yourself and taking the chance for something better down the road for maybe some tough times and some struggles, et cetera. I don't think that we're necessarily the classic immigrant story in the U.S., but in a lot of ways we are. The reason he came here, he was a diplomat from Liberia to the U.S., which is what initially started it, but it was really to give his kids an opportunity at a better life down the road. And he passed away a couple of years ago, but I know that he looked at what I've accomplished, my brother and my sister, and he felt like, yes, 100% made the right decision to give my kids these opportunities and look what they've been able to do with it. What an amazing thing. I'm so glad that he got to see at least part of what you've been able to accomplish. And I want to get into a little bit more of your career, where you are currently, this chapter that you're in. So in your role with IVP, you advise portfolio companies on everything from leadership, hiring, executive searches, and talent development. I'd love for you to share with us some of the most common barriers that you see companies struggle with, especially in those early stages with regard to human capital. Two challenges that come up over and over again. The first, especially if they're really early, is the founder, CEO, the founding team, the people that were there early, not being willing to give up responsibility and not being willing to broaden out from just that team as they need to bring in new people. There's this thing that happens with every organization where at first, everyone is a generalist and everybody does everything. And that's great. Everybody does everything. Everybody knows exactly what's going on. And everybody has a pulse of what's happening in the company and things are moving quickly. At some point, call it 50 employees, 100 employees, you need to start specializing. The person who's really good at the models needs to go into finance. The person who's the poet needs to go into marketing or needs to go into sales or into other areas. And when that happens, the early team they're reluctant sometimes, right, to give that up. And they're slower to hire than they should be or need to be. And every hire has this overwhelming weight to it where they can't get outside of themselves. So that's one thing that I see happen. And then the other side is similar to that, but the not hiring correctly, right? The, oh, they worked at name whatever hot company from three years ago, and they had that on their resume, let's hire them. Not, is this individual right for the needs that we have? Are they right for the role that we have? Can they solve our challenges and our issues? But just they come from a company that we respect or so-and-so other founders trying to hire them so they must be good. We've got to snap them up. But when they get to the point where they're ready to give up some of the responsibilities, they're giving it up to the wrong people or for the wrong reasons as they're making those hiring decisions. Those are some of the things I end up talking to our companies about a lot. And how do you help influence them, Seda? How do you help share what you've learned so that they can benefit from your wisdom and hopefully not make the same mistakes that other folks have made, or at least if they make them, learn from them pretty quickly and move on? In your role where you're not directly a part of the team, you're an advisor, but you've seen a lot and there's a lot that you can share, how do you help move them along that learning curve? Sometimes it is the latter. Sometimes it is they have to make the mistake for themselves and then they learn from that even faster, hopefully next time. But what I really try to do is help them understand that it's not me. It's the knowledge from IVP. It's the collective wisdom of the talent team, of our general partners, of everybody on our investment team, of everybody that's been working with and for our portfolio companies over the past 42 years that the firm has been around, right? Right. 
So when I say I've seen X, Y, and Z, that's helpful. But when I say our portfolio companies have seen X, Y, and Z, and our portfolio companies are experiencing this, and this is where they're finding success, and this is where they're finding some challenges, it resonates more. They understand that it's not just a single individual or a couple of people, that there is a big, wide team behind them that's backing that up, that has seen this over and over again. When we invest in an organization and we work with that team, we bring to bear all the years of experiences, all the markets, the good ones, the bad ones, the in-between ones, the companies that were 100 people, 50 people, the companies that were 1,000 people, 2,000 people, consumer, enterprise, SaaS, crypto, everything that you can think of, right? That's what we're applying to every single individual company we work with, and that's the benefit that they get. That is often much more impactful when helping them understand the challenges. And even I would say just recognizing it's a challenge, that it's a pain point, not assuming that it's easier, or even why are you having a hard time with this? Or can't you make that move happen faster? But starting by recognizing it's difficult, having some empathy around it, and then bringing to bear all those years of experience. That's an amazing value add that you all bring to the table where for the entrepreneur, the founding team, they're having a solitary experience, an individual experience. Yes. But really, you all are plugging it into a much bigger constellation, and you can see the patterns across the entire portfolio and then share those back to the entrepreneurs. It's an amazing advantage that you all are bringing to the table. Absolutely. Can you give us a sense of IVP's breadth and scale and size that we're talking about here? I don't know what the portfolio company number is over time. Like if I sat down and said over the past 42 years, I mean, we'd be into the hundreds for sure. I'm not even sure how much higher than that it would be. Right now on an active basis, I'm probably working with 78 portfolio companies. Wow. And that's companies, again, of all sizes and stages, companies in all different types of business with technology being the through line, right? Mm -hmm. Which is amazing and interesting because there are some things that are similar for a group of them and then that are completely different for other ones. And we get to take the lessons and learnings from mm -hmm. all of them. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself gravitating to one stage over another or one type of opportunity or challenge over another? No, I think I really like the idea that it's always different, right? Like I yeah. wake up thinking I'm going to do X, Y, and Z today, and then something else happens. But I like the idea that there's always something new. It, it, again, lifelong learner, there's always a different challenge. Working with companies that are in the security space that are 500 employees or more, that's very different than working with a company that is in the consumer space that's just starting out and 200 employees. And they've got similar challenges, let's say, in that they need to hire somebody to lead their finance organization. But the profile of that person is probably going to look very different. And the KPIs for that individual and how we think about hiring them and compensation, et cetera, it keeps it interesting that it's so different across the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And Seda, you've been one of the people who's actually written quite a bit about how much the world has changed in the past two years. You've put out several articles about how organizations can and should adjust to match the times and to meet the needs of their employees. I'd love for you to share your thoughts on how this transition to remote work has really changed access to talent and avenues for recruiting, specifically at that cross-section of talent acquisition and diversity. Absolutely. I mean, when I think about getting more diversity into tech specifically, you have to look at the numbers for the Bay Area. 
and I'll just pick on San Francisco as a city because that's where I live, the numbers of people of color, whether you're looking at African-Americans, whether you're looking at the number of Latino folks, et cetera, that have been in the city, that have exited the city, that are in the city currently, it's really challenging. And if that's the center of tech, whether you call it San Francisco or you call it Silicon Valley, it means that we're probably not the most diverse industry around. So how do we change that? How do we challenge that? Some of that, yes, is getting more folks into it, making it easier to live here, et cetera. But a lot of that, given what we've learned over the past two years, is using technology to access great talent that can't afford to live here or that hasn't made the move here. Just from personal experience, I lead recruiting for the firm on our investment team side. And I've had some great candidates that were on the East Coast, born and raised, that would have loved to come out to California, but they had family reasons that they couldn't, et cetera. If this was a different time before, and I could recruit those investors to help diversify our team and our portfolio, but have them be from a geography standpoint where they want to be, that would be fantastic. Now companies have that ability. Now we have the ability to work with people in pockets and areas where there are certainly more candidates of color. There are certainly more candidates with disabilities, et cetera, that don't have to physically be in the Bay Area in order to work for great technology companies. And I think that's fantastic. I completely agree with you. And are there specific recommendations that you have? So part of it is about using this opportunity as leverage for recruiting. All of a sudden, the pool of talent that's available to many companies has now gone from San Francisco or the Bay Area to wherever you are in the country. So that has become an enormous advantage for talent acquisition. Any insights that you've gleaned for also how to retain our top diverse talent, especially when we're distributed? Those are two separate and correlated questions, meaning one, and we've talked about this here in Silicon Valley for a number of years, where companies started doing a better job of recruiting in people of color, and then they went right out the door, right? There was this funnel where there was just a big old hole at the bottom. So just the question around recruiting and then retaining people, that's one. And then the second part is, in general, how do you retain remote employees? How do you work on engagement? How do you make sure that they are a part of the organization and not have this sort of out of sight, out of mind mindset when it comes to people that aren't in headquarters every day? And there are lots of different tools, challenges, and opportunities that companies have to work on that. But the number one and most important thing I would say is to be intentional from the very beginning. I know that there are companies that in particular, have had problems retaining strong leaders of color, people of color. And it's because they're not being intentional around their career path. They're not thinking about what they're in right now, where they could be going. Are they optimized for their career? That's one. Two, what is their day-to-day experience? It's funny. Today is the federal Juneteenth holiday where a lot of companies recognize it. And I actually woke up with this post on my mind on LinkedIn, and I didn't post it just because I don't post on LinkedIn that often. But it was something along the lines of quit turning your corporate logo to rainbow colors every June if your LGBTQ employees are dealing with microaggressions day in, day out. Quit talking about Juneteenth if your Black employees are still dealing with some of the most basic stuff day in, day out, right? It's not about these grand things. It's about their lived experience. And that's, for me, where it goes back to being intentional around 
do you know what their experience is like? Have you taken the time to ask them versus assuming? Have you thought about how it might be different than other folks in your organization? And that's everything from being in the office versus being remote. I think you've probably seen some of the studies around who wants to be back in office and who doesn't. And there are a lot of people of color and a lot of women specifically that say, actually, my work got better. I got more productive when I didn't have to fake the chat at the water cooler or when I didn't have to do whatever or suppress who I really am in order to be successful at this organization. And so as companies think about that retention piece and they think about all of those other groups and how diversity plays into it, again, being intentional, understanding your employee's experience, planning out that career mapping and thinking about what it looks like day to day, putting time and attention and resources and energy behind it, that's what's going to make a difference. Mm. Thank you so much, Seda. And you just said so much and I want to unpack it a little bit. I'm so glad actually that you mentioned (laughs) that post that you were thinking about because I have exactly the same perspective Every day at Breakline, we are working our butts off on this issue of closing diversity gaps in tech. And yet I find myself feeling very grinchy at these different heritage months and identity recognitions, Black History Month and Women's History Month and Juneteenth, Indigenous Peoples Day. It's just that it feels like a gimmick so much of the time as if it's an opportunity for people to let themselves off the hook of doing the real work. And I feel like a Grinch saying that, and that's why I haven't posted on it, but it really bugs me because we're letting people skate off without having to make the real investments and do the real work. So I agree with you. Just stop. I would rather people just didn't do it at all yes. than to do it in some sort of performative way without yes. any real action behind it. Yes. Or even worse, to do it at organizations that are well known for not being yes. kind, friendly, et cetera, to certain groups, right? Yes. Like that just makes it even worse. Yes, I completely agree. Your point around intentionality, I think, is also really important. One of the things that we hear about from our community and for folks who are listening who may not know Breakline well, we serve women, people of color, and veterans later this year will serve people with disabilities as well. And One of the things around communications that we've heard many times is something of enormous magnitude is happening to the community that I identify with and no one's talking about it in my office. And like the amount of energy we put into ignoring the elephant in the room or trying to sweep something under the rug or like just crane our necks to look over there so that we don't have to see what's happening over here. If we would just allow the conversation to take place, just open the doors, just acknowledge and notice. I think we would release so much of that energy that, as you mentioned, instead we spend trying to conform and trying to make other people comfortable while we're really suffering inside. One of our guests, yes, General Vince Stewart, he immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager from Jamaica, showed up with a backpack. That was it as a teenager, became one of the like most epic leaders of the Marine Corps. And he phrased this, Seda, as I used to leave myself in the parking lot when I showed up to report for work. Can you unpack a little bit more, like say a little bit more about this habit that we sometimes have, where we ask people to conform? I think you get told to do that in all sorts of direct and indirect ways. I went to college a long time ago, but I remember in college, the question mark was, 
if I was going to be out on my resume. And I remember having this conversation with some friends and my straight friends are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean being out? Like, well, I've spent a lot of time working for the LGBT center. And that was a big chunk of my college experience. And that's some of my volunteer experience, some of my leadership experience. Do I put that on my resume? If I put that on my resume, the law firms that I'm applying to will know that I'm gay. Is that okay? Can I do that? And if I don't put that on my resume, there's a big chunk of, well, how did you spend your time in college? What were you doing, right? And a big chunk of who I am as a person. And having to even have that conversation, having to even think about it. I have a friend whose name, birth given name is LaTanya, LaTanya Lisa. She sent out a bunch of resumes with LaTanya. And then she sent out those same resumes with Lisa, same organization called Lisa, but did not call LaTanya. And so you have to think about, will I bring my whole self to work? And I was lucky in the sense that I made a decision very early on. I could not work for a place that did not want all of me and who I was. I've never done anything differently. I've never had to sort of leave myself in the parking lot, but I understand the pressure to do that. And I have friends that do that in all sorts of different ways, left and right, in order to make it work. It shouldn't be that way. I 100% am a big believer that people do their best work. People are the most engaged and the most productive when they can be themselves. The extra burden, the extra pressure that you have to put on to play the pronoun game or to remember not to talk about this or to not acknowledge these things or to not even just say, I'm having a rough day or I'm pregnant and I'm having pregnancy brain right now and I really just need to go rest. Whatever it is that you're dealing with as a real life human being, to not be able to be that in your workplace you are losing a part of yourself and your organization is losing something from a productivity standpoint, from a work standpoint, all of those things. Oh, it's so true. And there are just so many examples in my life of when people show up as their whole selves and we can be the fullest expression of who we are. I completely agree with you. That's when we're at our best. The other thing that's amazing about setting the circumstances for that to happen is that gives everybody else permission to to be their best selves. Everybody's got something oftentimes that they're grappling with or working with and trying to get comfortable with. And if we can just give each other permission, wow, that really enables us to be at our best. You're 100% right. So it's funny. It's interesting. I talk about being who I am at work, et cetera, but I actually have hearing loss in my right ear. And it takes a while for people to know this because it's not something I talk about openly But you're right. I find that when I do mention it, other people feel free to talk about their hidden disabilities and other people feel free to to mention whatever or something that they'd been struggling with or doing whatever. And then it opens it up for others to actually be, I don't even want to just say kinder because I don't think people are mean about it, but for others to be more accommodating, right? For others to to understand, oh, that's why you always sit over here or that's why you need to be here. That's why. And people are usually more than willing to do that if they only knew But we all sometimes have this thing of, well, I can't say that or I can't do that. But the minute that somebody does, it makes it so much easier for other people to come out with their truth as well. Oh, I agree with that. My eldest daughter, Shaler, I've talked about her on the podcast in the past. She has alopecia, so she has no hair. And she's so cool. Seda, she just rocks her bald head to school every single day. Like she's just, you know, totally into it. And she is a friend magnet. And I think part of the reason why she's a friend magnet is her thing is visible and it's obvious. And so everyone can feel safe with her. You know, they know that she's got something hard that she's 
working with as well. And it's so cool to see when we can just be human with each other. Exactly. And I'm sure people are drawn to the confidence as well, because that yes. is just such a beautiful thing to see. And probably gives other people a little bit more confidence to yes. be whoever they are in whatever way. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I want to thank you, Seda, right now, because I want to announce right here, the IVP team has made an extraordinary commitment to Breakline and to the communities that we serve. IVP is starting this partnership by funding Breakline hires across the portfolio with an expectation of a long-term partnership. And it's the first of its kind. And we're just so excited about the opportunity. And I think even just in the half hour that we've been chatting, it's becoming obvious why there's such great alignment between our two organizations and the goals that we have. But when we were talking about this partnership, Seda, one of the friction points that Breakline has noticed over the seven years that we've been in this space is something that we've called the loss mindset. And this is the mentality that can creep up that suggests that I'm going to have to trade off something of value in order to hire someone from a diverse background or that I may lose something I care about in order to hire someone from a diverse background. And it comes up a lot. That mentality comes up a lot in our work. It's something that we're always addressing almost on a daily basis. And you've seen this as well in your career. And I would love to just hear from you how potentially you've seen this pop up in your work how maybe you address it or would advise other people to potentially address it? Because I think many folks are likely to see this type of mentality at some point or another and how we can all kind of move toward a mentality where, hey, diversity and top talent are actually one and the same. That's the exactly exact same, <laughs> the exact same objective. Exactly. This idea that the diversity hire and even using that language has to be the lesser than hire as opposed to the idea that it's a higher and we've opened up the aperture enough that we're actually getting diversity in the pool. We've kept the bar high and look at that. There are amazingly talented, diverse hires. It's so challenging. I see this often at the board level, to be totally honest with you. When our companies are trying to bring on independent board members, it's almost like, well, we need an audit chair. Oh, and then we need a diversity hire, right? And then we need a woman. And I like to blow their minds with this crazy idea that maybe your audit chair is a woman. Right? <laughs> is that possible? Is there maybe a CFO out there with great experience that could be the audit chair? Really, I can see the light bulb go off over their heads like, oh, wait, yeah, maybe we could get a two for It's not a two for one. It's you went out to find an audit chair and you said, bring me the best audit chairs. And you set up some objective criteria. You said, I need them to be a public company CFO. I need them to have this experience. I need them to come from staff, et cetera. And then I just went beyond the first same five names that we always use. And then maybe even beyond the second set of five names. And then look at that. There is a strong group of highly qualified women. And I think the same thing applies to every other role that you're hiring for out there, right? No matter what it is, that if you really wanted to. It actually takes me back to the presidential debate from a number of years ago and the binders full of women, right, comment. But if you really wanted to hire for any single role out there, I guaranteed you, if you were willing to just do a little bit more looking, I guarantee you, I could come up with a slate of candidates that were as diverse 
and just as qualified, if not more qualified, because there's the whole double tax and working harder, et cetera, than initial slate if you just said, who do I know? And I think that's the other problem with that loss mindset is a lot of hires start with who do I know? Who am I being referred to? And we know our networks tend to oftentimes look like us, come from similar backgrounds to us, et cetera. And getting outside of that is work, right? You have to do work to do that. But when you do that work, you will often be rewarded with a much more diverse group of candidates that you're choosing from without giving up a single thing on your list, right? Without having to get the lesser than candidate or to make the diversity higher or something separate. It's just the higher and the higher can be from a diverse group of candidates. Obviously, I completely agree with this. Another expert in the DEI space who I really look up to and respect is Ulysses Smith, who's at Blend. And he, I remember he posed on LinkedIn the question, should we refer to talent acquisition from you know a wide breadth of backgrounds as diversity recruiting or not? And it was interesting to see the opinions coming back, and there were a lot of them. I still feel like it's important. Because I worry that if we lose that language, we lose one of the levers that we have to close the gaps. But there was a lot of discussion around what the right terminology was and is. I'm curious about your standpoint on that. I think it goes back to being intentional. I think there are some organizations that just have it so baked into their culture and so baked into their process, they don't need to call it diversity recruiting because that's what they do. That's yeah. who they are. Mm-hmm. And you would never get to a final slate and have a group of five people or three people that yeah. look and sound exactly like that went to the same schools, et cetera. Yes. And there are other organizations that aren't anywhere close to that, mm-hmm. right? So I'm less concerned about the specific terminology we yeah, use and totally. more concerned about the intention, the process, meeting people where they are, mm-hmm. and making sure that we get to a point where every hire to that point is a diverse hire because yes. we really have gone out of our way to get that slate as much as we possibly can. Yes. And I just don't think a lot of companies are there yet. Right. You know? Well, the conversation that we often hear about is that there's a trade off between expediency and intentionality. Have you seen that? I've seen that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fair discussion point. But then I would also say, are you hiring for the next three months? Or are you hiring for the next three to five years? Right. Exactly. Yes. Like I I know such a a good manager, I'm always willing to wait. Yes. And be intentional about the hire and make sure that I've got the broadest cast possible. If I'm hiring for a role that I think is going to impact my organization for years to come. Mm -hmm. If I just need a warm body to sit in a seat for three months, sure. Mm -hmm. Expediency is great then. But if I'm really trying to add a member to my team Mm -hmm. that is going to impact some very big goals we've got to achieve, isn't it worth it? Totally. That three-month timeline is actually the window of time that we hear most about. Like, I've got to hit my number this quarter. And one of my favorite stories, my teammate Zane Knob, who's an Air Force veteran, and he now runs Customer Success, he spent four years at MuleSoft and Salesforce. He was coming out of the Air Force as an intelligence officer. MuleSoft was our partner. No one at MuleSoft was looking for an Air Force intelligence officer, SATA, to join the customer success team. Like, they were not interested. But he blew their minds in the interview process with help from an amazing recruiter there named Carly Donovan. And within three months, became their top performing CSM. And then he held on to that title for the next four years. Like, completely redefined what performance looked like. If they had hired for familiarity... Yes. 
they would not have gotten Zane and they would not have gotten his performance. And that's what I think we give up when we insist on like, I got to have the butt in seat. I got to have the person who can do the job solidly for three months versus what you're talking about, which is like, do you want to win? Do you, do you want to be winning three years? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. I love that example because first of all, when I hear somebody from military intelligence, I immediately think, wow, this is somebody that knows how to get a lot of information, yes. how to mm-hmm. distill it quickly, how to take mm-hmm. out the, I mean, that to me sounds like a higher period in whatever <laughs> department or discipline you're thinking about. But then, yes, if you're thinking about the long term, how hard is that person going to work once mm-hmm. you give them an opportunity? Mm-hmm. And where could they grow in your organization? How much mm-hmm. more could they impact? That's absolutely worth whatever time it takes to hire them, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sita, I wanted to switch the direction of the conversation just a bit, and I don't think that this will surprise our listeners at all with the perspective that you've shared, but you spent time writing about the importance of kindness, and I love to focus on kindness as part of business. Business Insider once called you, they said that you had the superpower of empathy. Would love for you to share how kindness and empathy play a role in your work. So I'm trying to think when it became just sort of a core tenet and a core value of mine. And it's funny, it's one of the things that I talk about when I talk about roles and why I would work somewhere or wouldn't work somewhere. And it's kind to people. And it's not nice because I think those are two separate things. To me, kindness is very much around how we treat one another and the recognition that we're all humans at the very core, work, not work, whatever, we're all humans. And kindness for me, is it's a basic, right? And it's something that I think we all could use a lot more of. And it's everything from just basic politeness, right? And good morning and how are you doing? And one of the things that I do in the organization every time I come in is I will take a lap around in the morning and just say good morning to people and ask them how they're doing and how was your weekend or how was last night or you know what's just try to have a human conversation with people that I need nothing from in the moment that I'm not asking anything of other than connecting with you as a human for two minutes, three minutes, and how are you doing? That's part of the kindness for me. The kindness for me is also the assumption of good. Like we all know that we've gotten that snarky email from a colleague or we've gotten that whatever, that message, that Slack message, that text. I take a moment to really assume that they meant something good, that they're just having a busy day, that they may have had a fight with their spouse, that their kid may be sick, something else will be going on. And I respond with kindness and not in kind, right? Because I think sometimes that's how things blow up. And So that for me is a tenant that goes through everything that I do. As it relates to portfolio companies and working with portfolio companies, it goes back to what I talked about before with that empathy piece. These people are trying to build organizations of consequence, right? They're trying to build things that are going to be here for a long time and that are going to impact the world. Some of them that are going to fundamentally change the world. That is a lot of pressure. That's a huge challenge. So just starting with recognition and empathy around that, that that is what they're trying to do. And that's a big honking thing. And then working to, now, how can I help with this specific challenge? How can I help with this specific issue? I spent an hour last week talking to one of the CEOs of our portfolio company that is having a challenge around return to work and having a challenge around engagement and some internal dynamics, et cetera. And as he was walking me through a few of the scenarios, honestly, a big part of it was really just being empathetic and saying, I understand. I hear what you're saying. Yes, these are some difficult challenges. And I've seen this from portfolio companies and you're not alone. Even just hearing you're not alone, I could see him brighten up a little bit like, oh, I'm, 
I'm not the failure. I'm not the bad kid. I'm not the one that did something wrong. And people are facing it. And there are lots of different ways we can think about this challenge. And here's the help that you know I think we should look at. And maybe there's some other solutions. It makes a difference when you connect with people as people, right? And not just as entities or companies or whatever, especially when you're trying to solve some really, really big challenges. Thank you so much for sharing that. Seda, it reminded me of advice from one of my mentors. He said, praise and thanks are free. So use them liberally. Kindness is free. We can use it liberally, pass it on. And I do think that we're in this moment where we can just use a lot more of that. The examples that you were sharing, you're showing up as a role model for other people. And I appreciate that so much about you. You're absolutely right. Praise and thanks are free. Absolutely free. The simple thank you, it is amazing how impactful it is yes. to people, especially those people that don't often hear it. Yes. Right? One of the things that I like to do with candidates, especially senior candidates for roles, is to take them out to a meal. Hmm. Their interaction with the waiter or the waitress tells mm-hmm. me an awful lot, right? Mm-hmm. Is it dismissive? Is it a thank you? Mm-hmm. Do they look them in the eye? Do they make eye contact? Do they acknowledge their name? Any and all of those things tells me a lot about how people are going to interact with every member of my team. Mm -hmm. And that matters, right? Are you going to be kind to the receptionist when you come in? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to be dismissive of her because you're running late and you're harried to get to the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Those things don't cost a single thing. Mm -hmm. And feel free to spread that around everywhere you go. Absolutely. And I want to be upfront, Seda, that I try so hard to be kind and I sometimes fail. (laughs) Yes, we all do. (laughs) Harried and crazy. I got four kids. It's like life is insane. And I sometimes miss my opportunity. I think about those missed opportunities a lot. I wish that I did not miss them. And I find myself spending more time on the missed opportunity than the time it would have taken me to be kind in the moment. And I'm interested in your perspective on this because you wrote this book called The Power of Practice. And I just think like the commitment, like, yes, we're going to fall short sometimes just being willing to practice and try again and try again. I was thinking about like my practice in trying to be a good human and trying to be a good person and falling short on a regular basis, but still waking up and trying again. I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about the central thesis of your book. Sure. So I wrote this book a few years ago and I'm surprised that you found it, Bethany. I really am. I wrote this book about this practice that I've been doing, and I actually wrote the book using the practice, but the general idea is every single year, I pick one thing and I do that thing every day of that calendar year. So it starts January 1st, it ends December 31st calendar year, and they're all things that I want to bring into my life. So it's never a, you have to stop doing this or quit doing this. That's not it. The intent is always, what's a new practice? What's a new habit, idea, behavior, whatever that I want to bring into my life? Because I think it'll enhance it. It might make me happier. Again, lifelong learner. Maybe I'll learn something from it. And I've been doing this for a long time, a very long time. And so I've learned a few things. And the year that I wrote the book, the practice was to write every single day. So I literally wrote the book in little segments and little chunks writing every single day. One of the years, the practice was one random act of kindness every day. And I 100% understand when you're talking about Bethany, the lost opportunities. And that's why it was intentional. Every day I had to find something to do. 
And it could be as simple as give someone on the street two bucks. It could be as simple as let somebody in the line ahead of me at the grocery store. It could be a give up my seat on Muni to somebody else to sit down, anything and everything along the way. But it was just one small little random act of kindness every day. One of the biggest lessons I learned from writing the book and from doing the practice, honestly, is don't worry about the missed ones. Tomorrow is another chance to start all over again. It really is as simple as that. So it's funny when you were saying that you try really hard, I say, don't even worry about that. Guess what? You're going to have another opportunity. Every day that you drive, I guarantee you will have an opportunity to let somebody in your lane, right? That is a small moment of kindness that none of us ever want to do that you can do and you can own on to. There will always be another one. That's what I really try to focus on. The practice this year is stretching because I have not been great about stretching And so I try to stretch. So some days, in fact, last night, it was two minutes at the end of the night before I went to bed because I realized I hadn't done it all day. This morning, it was a good 30-minute stretch session after I rode the bike, right? So it's okay. It's not about putting pressure on yourself or trying to be perfect because none of us are perfect at all. It really goes back to that intentionality and remembering these things are important. And that's why I'm trying to bring them into my life. That's why I'm making it a practice and going from there. Seda Howard. Chief Talent Officer at IVP, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you over the last hour. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you, Bethany. I've really enjoyed this. And I am so excited about the Breakline Partnership and can't wait to work with a bunch of IVP portfolio companies to help them get connected to your fantastic talent. Thank you so much, Seda. guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.